Tonight, our scripture reading will come from Galatians chapter 4, and this will be the last last uh, Sunday that we, we look at this passage, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And uh, next week, uh, Adam Venable, the RAF campus minister at uh, UAB, he'll be here uh, to preach while uh, my family and I, we are headed up to Michigan tomorrow to be with my family this week. Uh, one of the downsides of having moved all the way to Birmingham is we are more than a day's drive from pretty much every part of our family. So <laughs> that's why we're heading out tomorrow. But Adam will be here and he will take good care of you. Uh, let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I want to read it for us. And then we're going to look tonight at the cry of the Spirit. Listen to what God says. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As we've, I've mentioned uh, each of the three weeks that we've looked at this passage, I want to mention again that when we, in the season of Advent, In its most basic definition, Advent simply means uh, a coming or an arrival. And therefore, we talk a lot about waiting uh, in Advent. But as we look at the New Testament, there's actually two comings that really do frame and bookend the Christian life and, and the life of the church. It's the coming of Jesus at his birth, but also his coming again at the end of history. And so... We live between these two comings. We are people that live between the times. And the question I've been wanting to address with you from these seven verses is, what then do we need? What do the scriptures give us that can sustain us? As we look back to Jesus' birth and as we look forward to his return as the king of history, the savior of sinners, to rescue his people and to make everything right. What do you need to make it to the end? And there are, I suppose, a number of of answers that we could give to it, but one I think is often overlooked, is central to the passage we're looking at, which is the idea of God's gift of adoption, of sonship, of taking those who are not a part of his family and making you part of his family through sending his son, Jesus. And so far, what we've seen in Galatians chapter 4, the first week we looked at, in verses 1 through 4, we looked at the gift of the Father. Then when we looked at verse 5, we looked at the work of the Son. And tonight, we're going to focus in on verses 6 and 7 and look at the cry of the Spirit. And 
the reason I want to do that is I, I, we're looking at the cry of the Spirit, or the work of the Spirit, and I want to ask the question, why do we need to do that? Why do we need to look at the work of the Holy Spirit? And my guess is because many, if not most of us, struggle with some version of the attitude that we saw, and I mentioned a couple weeks ago, in the younger brother in, in Luke chapter 15, but also in the older brother who's in Luke chapter 15. There's the prodigal son's suspicion of the father's love and his goodness. And then there's the older brother's indignation and even resentment towards the father's love and welcome to him. And in both cases, in both cases, the sons involved are more focused on their failure in the case of the prodigal son, the younger brother, or successes in the case of the older brother. And as a result, they fail to grasp the love and the welcome of their father. And I, I, I would venture to guess that on any given day, we could probably see either one of those attitudes in our own lives. And therefore, both of them, in many ways, they're like a low-grade fever that never seems to leave, but it often spikes to dangerously high levels. And these, in this way, these both of these attitudes, they lurk in our hearts. And what lurks in our hearts is this belief that I am simply not worthy to be God's son or daughter. For some reason that you... For some experience in your life, either something that's happened to you or something that's been done that you've actually done. Lurking in your heart is this idea, I'm I'm simply not worthy to be God's son or daughter. Or, on the other hand, there's this attitude lurking, God is holding out on me. He's holding out on me despite my good moral record. Doesn't God know? What I'm doing. Now, my guess is many of you would never really say that out loud. But do you have that attitude lurking in your heart? Is there either this suspicion or this indignation? So, how do we grow out of these attitudes towards God? Or maybe an even a better way to ask, ask the question is how does God work in our lives to persuade us of His love and His welcome to the rebellious? And to the self-righteous. How does he do that? Paul gives us the answer to that question here in verses 6 and 7. And the answer that we see here is this, that the Spirit, the Spirit enables us to know and experience God as our Father just like Jesus does. That's the point. That it's only the Spirit of God at work in your life can you then experience and know God as your Father, just like Jesus does. So I want to look at three things with you. I want to look at the identity of the Spirit. I want to look at the work of the Spirit. And then we'll finish with the evidence of the Spirit. The the identity, the work, and the evidence. So first, let's look together at the identity of the Spirit. And in order to understand this work of the Holy Spirit or the ministry of the Spirit, uh, I want us to get to know the Holy Spirit according to Scripture. And that might seem obvious, but I think it's important to, to make this point that 
to some extent, I think it's fairly easy for us to at least grasp the idea of God as a father. Because you either are a parent or you have a parent. The concept of God being a parent is somewhat, it maps on to your everyday experience. And similarly, to say God the Son, there is a corollary in your everyday experience. Either uh, you have children or you are a child. And so to say that, that God the Son, there, there's something that maps on to your everyday experience. However, to say God the Holy Spirit is different. It, it, it doesn't map on quite as easily to your everyday experience. And so Paul here, to help us, in verse 6, he refers to the Holy Spirit here as the Spirit of His Son, in verse 6. The Spirit of His Son, in verse 6, when Paul says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son. Now, what does he mean by that way of describing the Holy Spirit? In order to understand that, Paul here is drawing a direct connection between the life and ministry of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and your life. So when Paul says the ministry or the Spirit of his Son, you should immediately think of, all right, how is the Holy Spirit evidenced or seen in the life and ministry of Jesus. And if you go back into the Gospels, what you learn is at the very beginning of his ministry, Mark chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends on Jesus. And it's this, that when the, the Spirit falls on Jesus, at the very same time, it are the words of the Father, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And immediately... The same Holy Spirit takes Jesus out into the wilderness, which is an analogous story to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the early chapters of the Bible. The Spirit is there in Jesus' baptism. He's there with Jesus in His temptation. He's there with Jesus throughout His earthly ministry. And we even learn that Jesus, the Spirit of the Son... The Spirit with Jesus raises him from the dead. Paul's point here, when he he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of his Son, what he's telling us is that to become a child of God means we receive the same Spirit at work in Jesus' life. One writer puts it like this, that the Spirit of his Son means this, that the presence in our lives of the one who was present in the life and ministry of the Son of God, supporting Him, assuring Him, and enabling Him to cry to Abba, Father. So Paul wants you to see here that this isn't a different spirit than the spirit that fell upon Jesus and was with Jesus. It's the very same Holy Spirit that God has sent To bring about our knowledge and experience of the adopting grace of God. So if the Spirit of the Son is the one whom God has sent, He is then uniquely qualified. He is uniquely qualified to bring about in your life the very relationship that Jesus enjoyed 
with his father. But how does he do this? Let's look at the work of the Spirit here again. And we'll look at verse 6 again here. First, I want you to see that we do need to see something here. The difference between the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the work of the Son, which is summarized in verse 5, where Paul says to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And one of the points I really wanted you to understand is the adoption that Paul is talking about right there is not an internal change. It's a change in status. It's a declaration that God here through Jesus the work of Jesus says to all who believe in him, your, your status with me is fundamentally changed. You are no longer a slave. You're no longer an orphan. You're no longer excluded from my family. But you are welcomed in. You are now declared to be a son, a daughter. It's a change in status. In other words, the work of the son is an objective work. It's a work that happens outside of you, for you, on your behalf. It's a free gift. It has nothing to do with your successes or your failures. It has everything to do with the success and the sacrifice of Jesus. But the work of the Spirit is totally different here. And this is really important to see, that the work of the Spirit is a subjective, internal experience. It's done internally, and it enables us to emotionally and intellectually experience the love of God demonstrated in the work of the Son. See, here, what we discover is That God doesn't just do something outside of us, but that in sending the Spirit of His Son, He's come to do a work in you. Now, why why is this so important? Here's the main reason. If the work of Jesus remains outside of you, it does you absolutely no good. Jesus simply remains an amazing unequaled historical figure who did great things that do you no good. In fact, one of the great writers in church history, uh, John Calvin put it like this from one of, uh, I suppose, one of the most influential books in uh, Western civilization. When he wrote this, he said, We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from him. All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. You see, without the work of the Son, there is no adoption. There is no reception into God's family. There's no change in status. But without the work of the Spirit, there is no experience. There's no enjoyment. There's no participation in the Son's work. So what do we see here? How does God actually go from the objective, historical work of the Son of God to our subjective, experiential 
work of the Spirit. In verse 6, he says that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Think about that for a moment. Into our hearts. You see, the gospel, it goes deeper and further than the incarnation of the Son of God. As a, as a baby in the first century. It goes deeper than his life and his ministry. Calling people to himself. It goes deeper than his death and his resurrection and even his ascension. Do you see what we have here? We, I, I, I've talked a lot about, you read it in the Bible a lot, where Jesus has come to identify with you. To share in your experience as a human being. But it's even deeper and richer than that because here what we see is that God in the person of the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your own heart. He comes to live in the very depths of your being. That's how close God comes into our hearts. And I want you to see two things about this. First of all, when Paul here says that God has sent the Spirit into our hearts, we need to hear a contrast there from earlier in this chapter where Paul talks about the law of God. Particularly because the law is described as an external authority that is good. It's not contrary to God's promises in any way. Paul says that again and again. But the thing it cannot do, it cannot bring life. It cannot change the heart. So this work of the Spirit of the Son is to come into your heart, into the very center of your life, to do what the law could not do. And this is how Paul puts it in a a somewhat parallel passage in Romans 8. He says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, when Paul says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, what he means there is that by the Spirit, it is now possible to begin to love God and love your neighbor as Jesus does. It is now possible by the work of the Spirit of His Son that you begin to no longer look to other things, even really good things, to give you what only God can give you. See, apart from the Spirit of the Son, we are helpless and we are lost. All that Jesus has come to do for us is of no benefit. But with the Spirit, in our hearts, there's life. There is new life. There's power. There is the ability, however slow, however small. With the Spirit of the Son, there is new life. But secondly, not only does the Spirit have the power to change the heart. The Spirit also reproduces in our lives the basic pattern that we see in Jesus' life. 
Let me, let me try to show you what I mean. If we look at the New Testament as a whole, and especially as you look at Paul's letters and Peter's letters, as they reflect on the ministry of Jesus, we begin to see something. We begin to see language like this, where Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And we also see, again, something like this. When Paul says that we are heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him, in order that we might also be glorified with Him. So do you see, there's a pattern there. There is a common experience described. And it's a common experience that has a pattern of suffering to glory. Now, why is that? The reason is, is that to be a Christian means that you are united to Jesus. And your life as a follower of his, as one united to him, your very experience will mirror his. That the path to glory and to freedom is through suffering. It's through hardship. And if you name him to be your savior, that's what you can expect. And in fact, one writer puts it like this. This is the rhythm of the Christian life. This is the pattern of our Christian experience. Suffering leads to glory. Trials lead to victory. Hardships are the pathway to maturity. It is so for the children of God because it was so for the Son of God. Since we have His own Spirit working in our lives, we can anticipate that the same pattern will be reproduced in our lives to conform us to the image of our elder brother. Now, here's the thing. If if this is the basic pattern of the Christian experience, of suffering to glory, you really need to know if the Spirit is at work in your life. Because every one of us understands that to go through suffering is hard, it's painful, it's exhausting, it's irreducible in so many ways. There are so many questions that simply cannot be answered this side of heaven. And so we need to know, is the Spirit of the Son at work in my life? Has He taken up residence in my heart? How do we begin to see the evidence of the Spirit? Paul here gives us, in very short phrases, in just a few words, several things to look for and to cling to. And first, before I really dive into some of those evidences, I want you to begin to think with me about how to read your Bible differently. That what Paul is saying here is that always and forever, the work of the Spirit in a believer's life is as the Spirit of the Son, is as the Spirit of adoption. There is no other way to describe the work of the Spirit in a believer's life than as the Spirit of the Son. And so whenever you read in the Bible about the Holy Spirit, ask yourself, all right, what do I need to remember about the work of the Spirit 
as the spirit of his son, as the spirit of adoption. What do I learn about God through the spirit of his son? Because see, his primary task is to make you realize with increasing clarity, freedom, and delight the reality of your new relationship with God as a daughter or a son. Of the one who made everything, who keeps your heart beating, who is the king and ruler of all that there is and all that there ever will be. So I want you to see here that there's several chief marks here, but the most significant one, the most significant mark of the spirit of of the son in your heart is prayer. Look what he says here. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's about prayer. When Paul tells us and teaches us about the spirit of adoption, the doorway he goes through for us to understand his work in your life is through prayer. So if you want to begin to see and discern where is the spirit at work in my life, you got to start with prayer. You see, in other words, the chief mark of the Spirit in your life is is your relationship with God the Father. It is about a relationship with Him. It's not about doing, first and foremost. Do not look for the, the evidence of the Spirit in your life by looking at what you do. It's about being. Look for the evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life based on who you talk to, who you cry out to, who you bear your soul to, who you are vulnerable with, who you ask help for from. It is about being that Paul is talking about here. Can you sit and be with God? If you can't, you need to ask yourself, do I understand the work of Jesus and this adopting grace and this promise of God sending his spirit into our hearts in order to help me cry out, Abba, Father. That's the chief mark of the spirit's work is a prayer life that cries out to God. But what, what more can we say about that? There, I, want, I want to point out three Characteristics. This word here that Paul says, cry, crying, or cry out. It's a, it's a word that refers to deep and profound passion and feeling. It's the opposite of, of putting up walls. It's the opposite of hiding. It's the opposite of putting on your best foot forward. It's the kind of word that describes total vulnerability, total transparency. Who's a person who holds nothing back, who's not afraid to be fully known, however ugly that may be. But I also want you to notice who's doing the crying here. You see, the subject of that verb crying is not us, it's the Spirit of the Son who God sent into your heart. Do you find it hard to pray? Here is the help you need. If you don't know how to pray, here is the help you need. 
You see, being a Christian is not about figuring out how to talk to God in such a way that He will do what you want. It is about His grace through the Spirit of His Son taking up residence in your heart, crying out with you, together with you, teaching you how to enjoy this fatherly love that we are so allergic to. But then also notice the Abba Father part. This is nothing, this, this is the most intimate cry. This is a, a child who is afraid, who wakes up in the middle of the night from a terrible dream, crying out, Mom, Dad, knowing that that parent will come running into the room to comfort them. That's the idea here. It is a picture of access and intimacy, of nearness, of confidence. Now, do you, do you see any of that in your life? Do you see those evidences at all, those characteristics? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you're like me, I need to hear again, how, how do I get those How you get these is you have to go back to the work of the Son. You see, everything in verse 6 and 7 hangs on the beginning of verse 6. When Paul says, and because you are sons. Because of the work of Jesus, the Spirit of the Son comes into your life. It's because of what Jesus has done. Now, notice with me for a moment. This cry that we see here, Abba, Father, it only occurs three times in the New Testament. The, another time that it occurs is in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 17, which you should go read. It's a parallel passage to, the, to this one in Galatians 4. They're almost identical with some difference, but they're incredibly similar. Same ideas. But the third time, the only other time it occurs is in Mark chapter 14, in verse 36. It's the night that Jesus was betrayed. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. What I want you to see here is, This cry of Abba, Father, in Galatians 4, you know where it occurs? It occurs right in the middle of the sweet spot of God's salvation. He's talking about one of the highest privileges of God's grace. It occurs in the middle of the good news about the gospel. But do you know where the the Abba, Father, for Jesus, off his lips occurs? It occurs the night before he is betrayed. Before he's forsaken, he is left alone, taken to the cross to hang outside the city, alone, where he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, here we have, in this prayer, the Abba Father prayer of Jesus was a cry in the midst of suffering and loneliness And therefore, because he prayed that on the way to the cross, 
This prayer of Abba Father becomes a prayer of joy and delight and good news. Because he prayed that prayer in the midst of suffering and trial and hardship. And guess what? He did not get his prayer answered the way he wanted it to. And you know what that led to? That led to his suffering and death for us. So that when you and I now pray this prayer with the help of the Spirit, you can know you will never ever be forsaken. That your adoption, that your welcome into the Father's family is secure. No one and nothing can take that from you. Not even death itself. That's the good news about this story. This passage, this prayer. That Jesus has gone before us and he has prayed, Abba, Father. This prayer of intimacy and access. He has says, All things are possible for you. He is trusted fully and perfectly for us in our place. He has said, he's cried out for help. Remove this cup from me. He's been transparent and vulnerable. And he has denied himself. Rather than seeking his own good, he perfectly loved and desired to do his father's will when he said, not what I will, but what you will. So how should this passage change you? Look at verse 7 briefly and then we'll we'll, we'll close. What does he say after all of this? He says, so you are no longer a slave but a son. How this passage should change you is you need to realize that if you are a believer in Jesus, you have a completely new identity. A completely new identity. You are a son or a daughter. There is no other message you need to hear every day when you wake up from the lips of the creator of the universe. That in Jesus, you are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter. You are a child of God by grace alone. You see, if that's true about us, what do you need to remember then? Look in verse 7 again. He says, if you're... You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, if you are a son, then you are an heir. And an heir has a right to all that belongs to the Father. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you belong to the one who owns everything. Who makes promises no one else can make and keeps promises no one else can keep. And what does this do for you? It roots out, it begins to remove two of the most common reasons, root causes of so much of our selfishness and our dismissal of God. It removes the fear of missing out or missing fulfillment. And it also removes the fear of losing approval. And instead, what it does is it replaces it with the words of your heavenly father, Words that we read in Luke 15 when he says, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You see, that becomes the identity of a son or a daughter of the king. That you begin to hear him say, 
Despite your weaknesses and your failings, you hear him say, you are always with me. All that I have is mine. All that I have that is mine is yours. And Jesus is the proof that that's true. Let's pray together.